Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode. We've got a couple of amazing stories for you today, but before we get into those, I want to introduce my guest host for this week, Brittany Daniels. Brittany, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tina. Thank you for having me back. Always good to have you. I feel like, you know, you're not, you're just like part of the family now. You're going to be a regular person on the show. So you guys just get used to Brittany. I love having you. I love getting to chat with you. We talk usually for about half an hour before we ever get started. So it's just fun. (laughs) It's true. It's true. We have fun. First of all, I want to remind everybody of Brittany's book, because we, we talked about that the last time she was on the show, but she has written a book called The Journal of a Black Queer Nurse, and briefly explained to everybody what your book is, Brittany. Yeah, definitely. So my book is technically a memoir, and it recounts different experiences that I have had as a nurse, as an ER nurse specifically, working in hospitals around the U.S. over the past five, six years, more specifically discussing the issues of racism, sexism, homophobia, and classism, things like that in medicine, and how it uh, impacts our, our daily lives. Absolutely. So... We featured Brittany in our good as our our good nurse in the last episode. We're going to have some more conversations with Brittany in our new podcast that we're going to start releasing to our patron followers after the first of the year. It's called Break Room Conversations. So if you want to help us out, the show uh, just a couple of dollars a month it goes a long way for us and paying for paying the bills here at Good Nurse Bad Nurse. We're offering a little extra podcast on there for our followers called Break Room Conversations, and it's basically all of the the people that I have on here. As guest hosts, sometimes I I just develop such a kinship with them, just a friendship, and they almost feel like family. And it's a great excuse for me to get to talk to them more in depth about things. And Brittany is definitely one of those people. I feel like I could talk to her for hours and hours and hours. So we're gonna um, we're gonna record an episode. And so if you guys want to be able to hear more from Brittany. Oh my goodness, she is a, a absolute wealth of, of knowledge for so many different things because she teaches, she works in an emergency room. <laughs> she she does so many different things that affect so many different aspects of nursing and healthcare. So I cannot wait to get that, to host an episode of that with you. Oh my God, I can't wait either. Yes, come join us in break room. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're interested in doing that, I would obviously would just love it if you wanted to help support the show. You can go to our website at goodnursebanners.com and sign up to be a Patreon follower. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. 
I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. So for today's episode, we're going to delve into a complex and unfortunately heart-wrenching case that's filled with betrayal, manipulation, and a struggle for truth, as a lot of times these these stories unfortunately are. This is the story of a seemingly ordinary nurse who committed an extraordinary crime leading to a conviction shrouded in legal controversies. This is the craziest story and so incredibly sad. It begins in the early 2000s with an arranged marriage in Pakistan. Asim was a was 30 years old at the time, Asim Amran. He brought his wife, 27-year-old Faiza Malik, to the U.S. and plunged her into a world of isolation. So this, Brittany, for me, I can just imagine how difficult this would be for a young 27-year-old woman coming from a a different uh, country into the United States, no family of her own here, and part of an arranged marriage. So I I don't know. What do you what do you think Ooh. about that? So it's funny because uh, she, you know, my wife is uh, was raised Muslim and comes from Sudan, and so I was actually asking her, you know, what are your what's your take on arranged you know marriages? And you know, she has her own personal thoughts about it, but it sounds like it's something that is so complex, something that is so controversial. And, you know, in some situations, I know that people are able to sort of figure it out and make it work. But in other situations, we find things like this, right, where you have absolutely no idea who it is that you're married to until after you're married to them. And I know that could be the case with a marriage that happens spontaneously and not, you know, that isn't arranged. But, you know, it's just like you said, so incredibly isolating to come to a place that you don't know with people that you don't know. And you only have one person to rely on to, you know, to interpret for you, to provide for you, and to really help you navigate this new culture and this new society. Yes, you said it perfectly. That's exactly my feeling as well. I do think it is more complex than a lot of us probably that aren't familiar with the culture can really appreciate. I don't think it's necessarily a, you know, black and white issue where it's just like, it's all one or or the other. I I think there's some gray area there where if you really look at it, it could be a good thing. There could be, if you have really good parents that really know their children and really are trying to do what is best for their children. They're not thinking in terms of like combining families or trying to keep some tradition going or, right. or something or try about mo- making it about money or it, it, if it's truly they're trying to do what's best for their children, maybe, and I have listened to other people's opinions on this. So that's kind of yeah, where my, my thought process is coming from. Right. It, it's like you can kind of see where a lot of marriages where people meet and fall in love and do the traditional rom-com way mm-hmm. uh, to end a divorce. So you exactly. can't necessarily say 
Or worse, it's, right? <laughs> or, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. We've right. got plenty or of those on Goodness yeah. Bad Nurse. Lots of those. So it's not about the arranged marriage here. It's not about like condemning a, a, a culture or condemning a, a right. practice that is embraced by those people. They have the right to embrace that culture and that practice. What bothers me is situations where it seems forced on someone. I, do, sure. I want people to have the freedom to choose what they, you know, to do what they, they have that freedom to do. Like, you know, I don't want to be in an arranged marriage. But, mm-hmm. Or I do want to be in an arranged marriage. That's totally, yes, I want you to choose for me. But I, I want people to have their. Yeah, the freedom. Uh, yeah. It, when I read this story, it actually, and I know this is so off topic, but not. I thought about the, the, the color purple, right? Like, mm-hmm. so this young girl is forced to marry this grown man, right? And be his wife and sort of live out this future that she had absolutely no intention on living, but her parents forced her to. And just thinking about all of the the turmoil and the heart, you know, heartache and stress that that put on her as a young girl was just heartbreaking to, to watch in that movie. But yeah, it's, it's it, right. It, all of our, there's so many differences across various cultures, but at the same time, there's so many, there's so much crossover. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, we never want to just across the board, you know, condemn one a, a culture or a, a practice right. of, that people that we don't understand. Yeah. We have no business. I don't think I don't think I have any business doing that. But in this particular situation, it was just the way that this all kind of happened where yeah. it was an arranged marriage. She did come to a, a country where she didn't know the language. She faced a huge challenge. She didn't speak English. The language barrier made her feel even more isolated. She couldn't obviously she couldn't talk to people around her. I mean, simple conversations that we really take for granted were a struggle for her. That, you know, adding to her isolation was the fact that she couldn't drive in the U.S., not in every city, but in a lot of states in the United States, a lot, I would say the majority of the United States, mm-hmm. driving is key to being independent. So her inability to drive meant she had to rely heavily on her husband's family for everything, social right. interaction, just basic needs. And they became her only link to the outside world in a place that must have felt overwhelmingly large and yet incredibly restricting at the same time. Right. And you think about, you know, she couldn't drive and that wouldn't be an issue for someone who understood the language, right? Because then you could talk about other options, you know, public Mm -hmm. transportation, Mm -hmm. uh, trains, buses, cabs, whatever. But Mm -hmm. when you don't understand the primary language that is, you know, spoken in the place that you're in, you can't even... You can't even use those other resources. It's difficult to even navigate in that situation. You've definitely got it. You have to have some resource. You've got to have some support. Support, yeah. Yeah, you know. So in 2008, the financial situation reached a critical point, compelling the family to make a significant change. Unable to sustain their living arrangements due to their financial troubles, they were forced to move. The couple and their son relocated to an apartment in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, that was owned by Asim's parents. Again, just by necessity rather than choice, it just kind of pushed her further into a dependent position. Yes, now, they, yeah. you know, it's not only relying on her husband, but also living under the same roof with his parents. It's just right. so much pressure. I just can imagine how difficult it must have been for her. Yeah. Isolating. Well, it, was ra- 
Definitely isolating. Absolutely. And it was around this time that Asim, working as a staff nurse, crossed paths with another woman named Sarah. They met at a nightclub, a setting obviously far removed from all the struggles of his home life. And this meeting sparked an affair, adding a layer of betrayal to the already strained marriage. The affair with Sarah wasn't just a distraction, though, from his marital issues. It became a significant factor in the uh, further deterioration of his marriage. So his attention and affections were now, of course, divided, and his commitment to his wife weakened as his relationship with Sarah deepened. And this it reminds me of a long time ago. I, my, my husband and I have been married for almost 30 years. And mm-hmm. we, when we were first married, we took a lot of like marriage classes and read books. I mean, like any, all the new books that would come out from the latest guru, you know, sure. love languages or whatever. And one of them I remember reading about. It's funny. I can, I feel like I took little gems from each one of them that sort of stuck with me. And it, this is one that when I read that, it immediately made me think of the love bank. I don't know if you've ever heard of this concept or not. It was out of one of those. So one of the books, I can't remember which one, and it doesn't matter, but it talked about the love bank and how you have this, you know, a bank in kind of uh, in you and you feed it it for, of, you know, for love and you, you put, put, you deposit, put deposits and you take withdrawals. And so like with your partner, your, um, your spouse or the person that, that you have a relationship with, if you have to, if you end up splitting that, you know, with someone else, you can't keep them both full. They're not going right. to be full. You're going to take from one in order to fill the other one. So having a relationship with someone else, even if it's not a physical relationship, just an emotional relationship. If you have an emotional relationship, people jokingly talk about their work, work wife or their work husband. Right, right. I, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. I'm not trying to be that person <laughs> that's just like, you know, but just think about it. If you do, you know, if you're married or ha- if you're married, you have a, a significant other, you you have, you know, a significant committed relationship with someone. But then, you know, you're at work, you do, you, you probably, should, I'm not saying you shouldn't have relationships or friendships. Of course you should. You have to have, that's not even healthy uh, right. to not have any other real <laughs> friendships. Do think I think you know about the love you know, that uh, level of emotional connection that you're making with another person. How much time you're te- spent texting with them, and how much time are you spending de- making deposits into that love bank for you know the person that you are committed to and and into this monogamous relationship. And it seems like that's what happened with him. He had two people, and he had you got to choose one. He was in debt. Make- He was in debt, definitely. (laughs) Loved it. So the combination of financial stress and infidelity created a volatile mix, clearly. Vaza already grappling with the challenges of language, the you know, language barriers, cultural adjustments, isolation. Now she's facing this, the the pain of betrayal. His affair with Sarah was like pouring salt on an open wound of their marriage, exacerbating the existing issues and leading them down a path of further discord and despair. So on December 31st, 2008, Sarah confronted him with an ultimatum. That's, oh my goodness, it sounds like a movie, December 31st, yeah. first, right? It's like <laughs> New Year's Eve. Yeah. I could totally, this is literally a, a you know, the way. And I, 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 the new year. 
I can see it though, because t- yeah. these significant mm, moments, like Valentine's Day, has never really been a big deal to me. But I, I, yeah. I, I get it that it is for a lot of people. Um, but like Valentine's Day or birthday or holiday, you know, just whatever right. holiday you want to spend those a lot of times with the person that you're more connected with. So if you you've got your person at home that you're committed to, mm-hmm. then you've got this other person. And you're kind of trying to find ways to get out of spending your New Year's Eve with mm-hmm. your the person you're committed, your wife, you know. Right. That's where it's gonna it's gonna be like, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know? So I could see why this ended up in this situation on this particular day. And she confronted him with an ultimatum. This is his not his wife, but the woman that he was having an affair with. So she's like, I want you to spend New Year's Eve with me. Right. And he's probably thinking, well, I can't exactly spend New Year's Eve with you. I've got my wife. She lives with my parents. I can't. That's going to look really bad. So this is where an ultimatum is coming. Like, okay, I'm tired of being second fiddle, playing second fiddle to this other, you know, your wife. You got to make a choice. So that night he left with his son for Sarah's apartment. And then over the next few days, his stories about his wife's whereabouts varied wildly from claims of her being drunk to stating that she had left for Virginia, whatever that means. So these are just, I think, stories that he was kind of putting out there to to try to make sense of, of her just, you know, missing. But the story was that he took their son and basically gave the, his son to Sarah and said, you have, because she already had a child and basically said, you have two children now. Right, right. Yeah. So in early January of 2009, FISA was reported missing. It seems conflicting accounts to family and, and authorities only, of course, deepened the mystery about her whereabouts. I think everybody knew she didn't just leave. Leave. She was, exactly. Yeah. She was not. How can a person, right, exact that. How Mm -hmm. can a person with zero, one, one resource, right, her husband, yeah, leave without that one resource and go where and do what? Mm -hmm. You know? His narrative just continued to unravel further when police involvement escalated and Sarah's persistent questioning finally led him to confess his horrific deed. So basically, Sarah is the one that told on him because he told her and she was shocked. So the trial was obviously fraught with legal challenges, photographs of the victim's decomposed body in the suitcase. So he put her in a suitcase when he disposed of her and that raised issues of prejudice. He had made some admissions to the police And they released those in court. And later on, Asim came back and said, oh, you that just prejudiced the jury because they wanted to make it seem as though, and and I'm always hesitant to, I I need to be careful here because I didn't really do any disclaimers at the beginning, but she was responsible for her own death. Once he decides, oh, she was the one that, that caused her own death. So you can't tell the jury you know, it's going to prejudice them, showing them, you know, that you know, my my statements and and telling them that showing them her decomposed body, it's just going to pre- prejudice them. So the defense's argument of uh, of their account was contradicted, of course, by the medical examiner's testimony 
who stated that it was a homicide. And so a juror's exposure to prejudicial material material almost led to a mistrial. But the evidence was absolutely overwhelming. He had inconsistent stories, the incriminating, there was an incriminating letter written in his own handwriting, intended for Sarah, right? And his failure to convince the jury of his innocence led to his conviction, ultimately. They found, right, the medical examiner found a ridiculously high dose of morphine when they did the autopsy, right? Oh, man. That's exactly right. He was convicted because they found a really high dose of morphine, which he would have had access to as a nurse. He tried to make it seem as though she did that to herself, but where is she going to come up with morphine? Exactly. When he's the one working in the medical field. Right. And he's the one having an affair. And he's the one that has, you know, a person that he's seeing outside of his marriage who is putting pressure on him. To make a decision. Yeah. Yes. So not to mention the 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 elephant in the room, right? She ended up in a suitcase. She didn't do that. Right. Which he said, uh, he claims that when he found her mm. and realized that she had done this to herself, supposedly, right. that he panicked and mm. said, there's no way that no one's going to believe that I didn't do this. Right. So he tried to, rather than him believe, thinking that, you know, no one would believe that he didn't kill her somehow, he thought it would be more believable that she just vanished into thin air. Someone who was in this country who didn't speak English, who had no job, right. who had a child that she was very, very close to, loved, 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 loved her child, was like the most important thing in the whole world to her. Yeah. And abandoned her child and just vanished into thin air with absolutely no resources, no connections. <sighs> so that was Man. much more believable somehow to him. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't think any reasonable person, I don't care how scared you are that you, you, if you find your spouse, you know, dead and dead. you're just like, oh my goodness, someone's going to think I did this because I've been having an affair. And I mean, that right. happens. I mean, you, I'm sorry, but people sometimes have things going on in their lives that- Oh, Yeah. It would really suck to be you if your spouse went missing because it would definitely, it's going to look bad. <laughs> it, it's going to look bad, right. But at the end of the day, right, like we know <laughs> we, we know that we can collect evidence, right? Mm-hmm. It, you know, people always, you know, make assumptions, but you would just think a reasonable person would say, oh, my God, I need to call 911. Let's see if we can get her some help, right? Let's yeah. see if we can get, you know get her back if you really did truly right walk in and find her like that unconscious not breathing you know Mm -hmm. why why not call you know for help why not you know try to give cp or whatever but yeah it's just it makes it so much harder to believe right that he's not responsible yes and no one no one believed it i mean it's so strange because this is not the first story that i've done about a nurse killing their spouse and putting their remains in a suitcase to dispose oh, wow. of them. There's another one. There is literally another one. Actually, there might, there's a, there's one, there's another, there's actually two other ones that I can think of because one was a doctor, but I don't know. It's just, where do people come up with these ideas? I, I just don't get it. And I, I say this quite often whenever I'm talking about like these particular situations, because there are different situations. There are situations in which people just find themselves just, you know, they're angry or Mm -hmm. just through 
maybe having some mental distress or whatever, that they do something that they regret. But then there's things where people literally, you can tell they thought this out for months. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. These are the people I'm trying to reach (laughs) when I say this. You guys, look, there's too many of these stories. You are going to get caught. You are not smart. You are smart. Make no mistake, you're smart. You, You went to nursing school. You went to medical school. But there are so many people, oh my goodness, like off the charts with their IQ. But when it comes to planning a murder to try to, you know, you think you've concocted this perfect scenario, <laughs> you can't do it. You just cannot exactly. do it. You're going to end up because you get to doing, you just try, you know, try to go through the process of whatever plan that you've concocted yeah. and the adrenaline kicks in and you, oh, yeah. you're going to forget things. Absolutely. You think you won't, Absolutely. but you will. You will. You, and you're going to get caught. I, I think that there's a level of arrogance, right? Yeah. That resides in the brains of these people who commit these crimes. Yeah. And I think that that is like the only, I mean, for me, that's the only thing that I can attribute it to because otherwise, you know, you just. <laughs> I think about Dr. I think his name was Dr. Macchiarini. He was the one who invented those uh, plastic tracheas, you know, and I'm not thinking so like he's obviously brilliant, right? He was a surgeon, you know, he was uh he went through medical school, whatever. But mm-hmm. then you you had the right idea, but Instead of taking those proper steps to sort of implement this idea, you just fooled, you lied to everybody and made them believe that you did something and it was successful. Meanwhile, people are dying. And then on top of that, very similar to this case with Asim, you know, he's married and then having, you know, entire relationships with other people and then lying, saying that. He has to go do emergency surgery for Barack Obama, right? right? And so it's like, you're so smart, but then your lies are so stupid. But people are believing them because you are who you are, right? And because you've done such successful work. And yeah, it just, it blows my mind. Yeah, it, it, it is, it's really amazing that they're, that people, they are very delusional in their own self-awareness. Yes. Like they right. really think... They are so much more intelligent than everyone around them that that they aren't going to see through this lie. Exactly. (laughs) They think, I can tell you I'm going to go, you know, meet with Barack Obama and you're just going to believe me because it's me. Yep, it's me. Right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm successful. I speak a bunch of different languages. I'm smart. Why would I lie to you? Well, yeah, (laughs) I'm so much smarter than you. And I, I, I think that there is... Not just like the people around them, but even the police. I think that there's yes. an arrogance sometimes against the detectives. They just think, oh, dumb police. There are lots of crazy things that go on in police departments. I've talked about plenty of those um, <laughs> on this podcast. But there are also really intelligent detectives that are really good at their jobs. And they see you coming, man. They really oh, see yeah. you coming. <laughs> and they love. I feel like they love people like this because they're just like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they know how to have the conversations to make them feel like they're believing them, even though they're not, right? Yes, they do. Yeah. People are crazy. 
We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything, but it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high dose CBD products that actually work. And now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell a difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. So he had actually written a letter that he planned to have Sarah copy over and then take the blame for, unfortunately, you know, somehow take the blame for Malik's murder which is insane, but it outlined how morphine and Valium that, as we said, you know, were found with, uh, in her, in her body were used to poison her. Mm. And he claimed to not have known what drugs were in her system until they were revealed in a toxicology report. But then there was a recorded conversation with one of his brothers in which he talked about the letter, which proved. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's that arrogance. There's that arrogance. Yeah. And it's funny because one of the district attorneys said, a murderer knows how he kills. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's that like, is interesting. You, and you can't, it, that's the thing, it, you, as smart as you think you are, you can't prepare for all of the different scenarios that you're going to put yourself in right. once you've done this and then you're confronting all these different people. You're, right. you're confronting the detectives. You're confronting the district attorneys. You're, con- you're, you're having to explain yourself to your attorney, probably not admitting what you're doing, exactly. what you had done. So you've got this. So, so you start telling the story is that you came up with to, before you even did it. And it starts to unravel because they see through it and they start poking holes in it. And then you have to start shifting. And before you know it, then you're having recorded conversations with people because (laughs) Sarah that he was dating, you know, we said they had met at a nightclub. Mm -hmm. She was a dancer at this nightclub. And so he actually took her to a different nightclub and talked her into recording a tape, a a special, a special tape (laughs) with him in order to get her, I guess, her allegiance. And she agreed to do it. She must have really cared for him. But I am sure just just based on her, you know, reaction to everything after, after it all kind of came out, it became obvious what happened. She had nothing to do with this. And she did not want that she wanted him to leave. Exactly. Right? Not, not what actually happened. But she basically did agree to create this video, though. 
And mm. after she did, he confessed to the murder, to her, and actually wow. showed her the area where he disposed of Faisal's, you know, remains, you know, with the suitcases. And he said, she said that he threatened to kill her and her family if she told anyone, but she went to the state police the next day. So Excellent. that took a lot of courage. Excellent work, Sarah. Yes. Yep. Absolutely took a lot of courage. And I feel bad for her in the situation because I think she just didn't real, you know, realize what yeah, she had gotten herself into, just like Faisal. She just did not understand the person that, that she was dealing with. Exactly. Which, yeah. No, but don't only... you think people, sometimes people are really good at just showing you what they want you to see? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Especially a, a narcissist like Asim. You know, it's very easy to show people exactly the person that they think you want them to be. It's incredibly easy. It almost is second nature for them. Yes. And the manipulation is beyond comprehensible. Yes. He tried to say that she was depressed and that he had, you know, like I said earlier, he came home and found that, that, that she had been responsible for her death. And he actually testified that he just, you know, just panicked, disposed of her body, thinking he would be blamed for it mm-hmm. because he knew he had been cheating on her. He knew he had been unfaithful. And he knew he had access to the controlled substances, although right. at the time he said he didn't know what was in her system. If you really stop and think about this, clearly he didn't think any of this stuff through from no. the very beginning, because what are you, you know, what are you, you can take just about one minute and figure out that this plan is not going to work. <laughs> right, exactly. Be- because you're going to say, first of all, it's like she just disappeared. He had to scrap that whole thing yep. when he goes and tells you know, Sarah, Sarah, what happened? Because then she's like to go in and tell the police, go to tell the police, and then they find her remains. So now, okay, never mind. She got depressed and did that to herself. Yeah, but to switch gears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what happened, actually. And then she ends it's up so with irrational. It's completely irrational, and she ends up with substances in her in her body that she would not have had access to herself. Right. The defense attorney accused Sarah of being aware of Malik's death from the start and even offering her vehicle for the disposal, but she absolutely denied that. And it doesn't make any sense anyway, that just the way that the whole thing transpired. He made many attempts to paint her as a liar and discredit her testimony, but that did not sway the jury whatsoever. So they did ultimately did convict him. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole on Wednesday, December 12th, after being convicted of first degree murder. The jury deliberated for about eight hours over two days before returning the guilty verdict. I don't think that's very long, but I I don't think it would have taken very long with all that evidence. I don't think it, I think that, and and this is 100% just my personal opinion and my two cents. I almost feel like the only reason why it took eight hours was because of that whole attempt to involve Sarah in it. I can see that sparking some conversations and disagreements in the, uh, you know, in the, in the jury room. But I feel like without all of that work to try to tie her into all this and make her partly responsible, I think that the eight hours would have been even shorter. But you're right, mm-hmm. eight hours is not a lot of time. I will say the times that I've been on a jury, especially one in particular, it was really tempting to just like at the very beginning, like we all know. But <laughs> what I really admire about the whole process, it seems like 
anytime I've been on a jury, it seems like most of the people there really, even if you do have like a gut feeling, you want to, mm-hmm. you want to like dig into the details. You want to yeah. like, you want to know that you want to walk out of there feeling like you, you examined everything and you right. made the right choice because it is someone's life that you yep. are talking about. I think that while our criminal justice system is so lacking in so many different ways, it, it it's is. all we have. And it is made up of people who can also find themselves at on the other end. So hopefully they use that as a, a basis for yeah. motivation, yeah, for doing the right thing and right. Try, trying to, to be just and trying to make the right decision because you could be a victim and you want to see someone pay for the crime that they committed against you or your loved one. Or you could also be innocent and be, you know, accused of something that you didn't do. And so as a juror, you would hope that everyone would take that seriously. Asim showed no signs of emotion as the verdict was announced. Judge Janet Kenton Walker later imposed the mandatory life sentence. That's the end of that story. I mean, it's really unfortunate. It's sad. I don't, it's hard to understand why. I don't know. I think people literally can go into almost a a state of temporary insanity when it comes to certain situations. Like, I think money issues can put people there. Certainly relationship, like infatuation, I don't even want to call it love because I think it's more of an infatuation, can cause people to like literally kind of go insane and make these decisions. I, under no circumstances do I think that it is, that they could use that as a defense they absolutely should not. But I'm just saying that something happens to people, I think, in these situations that just, they just don't, they they aren't thinking clearly. Yeah, you're abs- I completely agree. I completely agree. And yeah, money is a big one. You know, money for some people, their uh, reputation, right? Someone finding out that they did something or said something that is unlike what you know, what they expect from that person, all of these situations. And of course, when you hurt somebody or do something that compromise it, that you know is going to compromise your freedom. Ooh, I can't even imagine what I would do. I once stole a pair of baseball gloves from Sports Authority. And I think I was 10, 11, maybe. I was just hanging out with my friends and we were at Sports Authority. We had no reason to be there except for like to look at stuff. And I saw these gloves that I really wanted. And so I took them and the metal detector went off on our way out. And I literally like, when I say I ran, like I was being chased by a wild animal. I ran so fast and no one in, in, in reflection, no one even noticed it went off because, you know, like at the store, the thing goes off all the time, you know, especially when folks are taking out like big carts of items or whatever. So no one even looked at me. It was just the fact that it went off and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to jail. I booked it. (laughs) Right. And so obviously I'm this, you know, I'm making poor decisions as a child already, but, you know, thinking about losing my freedom because of that decision made me run faster than I've ever ran in my life. So I can't even imagine what people are thinking when they do something that they know, right, is going to compromise their freedom in that way, like murder. Yeah, there are some people, I've I've done some of these episodes on, especially the spousal situation, where one person, because of their religious beliefs, or just, just their social, and just their family beliefs, their traditions or whatever, they don't want to get divorced. They don't want to be a divorced person. 
and they don't want to be seen as failure. It's maybe against their religions for some people, literally against their, it's considered a sin. So they're going to kill their spouse because they can get forgiveness for that and then move on afterwards and everything be okay. It's the craziest mindset. Yeah, I can't make sense of it. I really can't. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. Well, I guess we can move on, though, to this Goodner story. I'm really excited about this because I just come across this story and it has a movie that was made about it, which I always love that. I always always love when I, you know, if you come across a story that has a, a movie that's made about it, it must be a really good story. And this really is. I mean, it's great. This is a fantastic story. I'm excited to share it. So this is the story of, of nurse Colonel. This is a Colonel. And oh my goodness, can you help me out here, Brittany? How do you think she says her first name? I think, and I know I was struggling with this too, I think her first name is Margaret. So that reminds me of several years ago when we first started the podcast, the person that I started the podcast with, Sam, she was a hoot. She's really a Southern girl at heart. And she, we were talking about midwives and I was telling the story about, I don't remember what the story was, but I was talking about midwives. And I said, midwifery. 
And she absolutely busted out laughing. She laughed at in my face <laughs> at me. It was so funny. I was like, what? She was like, that's not how you say it. It's midwifery. And then I started laughing. I was like, that is not right. <laughs> you don't say midwifery. It was so funny. We were laughing at each other, making fun of each other. And so right there on the on the air, I just go, I Googled, I was like, I'm Googling this right now. Actually, she did it. She did Siri. And she said, hey, Siri, how do you say I can't remember. She must have spelled it. I don't remember. But anyway, she, she or she maybe she typed it in and it said midwifery. And I was like, ha, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> we died laughing. It was hilarious. Oh, my gosh. I, I love laughing at myself, but I love laughing at other people even more. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Laughing is healthy, but it's also hilarious. The English language is just so nuanced, right? And so... Everyone pronounces something differently, but I'm glad you won that. I'm glad you won that battle because I, I would have been rooting for you. That's what this reminds me of. We had to look at it. I had to Google, had to ask Siri how to, how, had Siri how to uh, pronounce it. So I was like, hey, I won. And then people from all over the world were emailing me and, and texting me or messaging me on social media. It was so funny. They were just laughing hysterically at Sam. <laughs> for her pronounce, which is hilarious that she started off laughing at me. Oh, gosh, I love it. So this is the story, though, of Colonel Margaret Greta Kammermeyer. So we're going to honor her. She was an extraordinary figure in military history. Obviously, she's a colonel. Her life story is not just a testament to personal courage, but also a pivotal chapter in the struggle for LGBTQ plus rights within the military. Her journey begins in Norway, where her parents escaped from Nazi occupation instilled in her, that instilled in her a, sp- a spirit of resilience and courage, as you can imagine. At just 19, following her graduation from nursing school, she joined the army, marking the start of a remarkable career, just unbelievable. Her military Service took her from the U.S. to Germany and then in 1967 to the challenging terrain of Vietnam. At the 24th Evacuation Hospital at Long Bend, she led a neurosurgical intensive care unit. Okay, I have worked in neurosurgical intensive care units because I was a CVICU nurse and I floated to all of the other ICUs because apparently if you work in CVICU, you're supposed to be able to work in all the other ones. Well, that's, I guess it's true, but I have felt like a fish out of water because man, that is a really, really, really tough ICU. So tough. I can't even imagine, you know, you know, I'm an ER nurse. I get so intimidated in general when I take care of neuropatients. And so I can't imagine the pressure of leading, right, an entire unit specialized in, in in neuro and being an intensive care unit. We know the severity and the acuity of those uh, d- disorders and diseases. I can't even, I can't imagine. I, hats off. Absolutely. Well, her exemplary service earned her the bronze star for bravery, but her challenges were not only on the battlefield. After Vietnam, she faced the prospect of involuntary discharge due to military regulations against pregnant women. 
and mothers in active service. It's so frustrating. Unwavered, she transitioned to a career with the Veterans Administration, simultaneously serving in the Army Reserve. Her contributions to nursing were groundbreaking. In 1985, her dedication and innovation were recognized when she was named the VA's Nurse of the Year. Is that something or what? The VA's Nurse of the Year. Wonderful achievement. Her work in neurocare and self-care models left a lasting impact on the field. The late 1980s brought a turning point for her. She, embracing her identity, she openly stated her sexual orientation during a security interview leading to her discharge from the Army Reserve under the military's then policy against homosexuals. This setback only fueled her resolve. Her subsequent legal battle against the uh, Army National Guard brought significant attention to the military's policies on homosexuality, marking a significant step in the journey towards equality and inclusion. So I will tell you guys that I remember in the 90s when Bill Clinton was president and the don't ask, don't tell policy was passed. That was actually, some of you who are younger may not realize this, that was a significant advancement for homosexuals in the military. And I know some of you are going, what? That's a horrible policy. Stop and think about this for a minute. The climate in the, in the 90s was so different than it is now. If you can imagine, and, and, I'm, and I'm glad that you guys can't. I'm so glad that you can't imagine this. But that, to me, that was not very long ago. And most people in America, they had a very different view of homosexuality. It was... It was a lifestyle choice that that was frowned upon by people. I don't know. It was just the the way people were brought up and a way of looking at it that's just completely different than I think probably is more prevalent now. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, to some, being a, a same gender loving person was an illness. It was a curse. And it most certainly those thoughts transcended, you know, various professions, including the military. So it was thought that folks who, you know, loved the same sex or or preferred the same sex were sick. You know, that illness was making them feel that way or make that choice, right? Uh, and so, yes, it was in- incredibly different, the, the climate of LGBTQ plus uh, individuals and their acceptance. It, it wasn't a thing. There was no acceptance. It was unacceptable. And it really did ostracize those individuals, especially when they were very uh, out and transparent and open about their sexuality. So yeah, this was an advancement, unfortunately. <laughs> it, it was. It was an advancement. And the, the thing is that up until Bill Clinton did pass that, the military could ask. That's the, that's the key point. The military could ask, and then you had to tell them. You, they could ask, and you had to tell. So if you were dishonest, you could get a dishonorable discharge. There's so, there was, it was so much bigger than you can even imagine right now. But stop and think about what Bill Clinton did. He said, all right, he was such a good, like middle ground kind of person. Uh, I'm not saying I'm not, I, 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 I hate getting into politics on this show. I, I like to just live in the middle somewhere, but you know, happily, I don't know. I don't I just don't like going there. But whatever you liked or didn't like about him, he was such a bring together everybody. Let's like, can't we all just get along kind of person. And that's what he did. He said, Look, if you don't ask them, they don't have to tell. 
Nobody has to know. It's none of your freaking business. Everybody just, you know, you can't take that off the form. You cannot ask them that in an interview. It's literally none of your business. So you don't offer to tell them, just don't mention it. It was an advancement because now the military cannot ask you. There are people who literally experienced this because they were trying to live in a world where they wanted to be in the military. They happened to be gay and they did not disclose anything, but because you live around people who can see what's going on. And then once evidence is, evidence can be built against you in the military, they have their own way of, of investigating. They have their own court system and everything. And so if they can build a case against you and say, look, this person is gay, then and once that's proven, they can be kicked out of the military. That happened then uh, to people. So that's why we had to make advancements beyond that, clearly, because it was still technically against their policy. It's just that you couldn't, you know, it was the don't ask, don't tell. So for people, people get so upset about the policy, that policy served its purpose for the time. Okay. We just had to get past, you know, we, we had to move beyond it. Yeah. So her story actually reached a wider audience through the TV movie Serving in Silence, produced by Barbara Streisand and starring Glenn Close. That's the craziest thing. Can you imagine? Oh, my (laughs) God. That's that's wild. (laughs) It really brought her struggles and triumphs to the living rooms across America. This was in 1995. And so, again... This was a time where a movie like this, this is a, a made-for-TV movie starring Glenn Close, produced by Barbara, Barbara Streisand. It really reached a lot of people. Sure, probably stirred up lots of controversy, but controversy can be a good thing. And I remember in the state of Tennessee many years ago when we were trying to make progress in the state of Tennessee and the people who didn't want people to be able to have same-sex marriage, they did not want to have same-sex marriage in the state of Tennessee, they felt like they won because the law was not passed that we were able to have, or I think it was something more along the lines of defining the the de- like the definition of marriage or something like that. I remember seeing on TV at the time um, on news there was somebody who was very prominent in the gay community that was speaking out about it, and they said that we we see this as a win. It, it, you know, we see this as a step forward, even though we didn't actually win. You know, this particular you know this law wasn't passed. We see this as a step forward because the con- the conversation is happening, and that's what that's we have what to we remember. Have. You have to talk. You have to you have to be able to communicate, talk about these things, and because the more discussion you can have, and, and the, here's the thing too: if we get mad at each other, and if you get mad at people for having their beliefs and for stating their beliefs, and just turn them off, stop following them on social media. Oh, I'm not going to listen to your podcast anymore because you said this or that. And that stops the communication. That stops the dialogue. If you really believe that something I said today was so incredibly offensive and wrong and against your morals and against your beliefs, why would you not want to reach out to me and try to convince me to your side if you think you're right? So let's continue the conversation. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, we we'll, we will all move better forward as a society if we continue to have these difficult conversations. And it's okay to have emotion and to feel certain emotions, positive or negative, while having these conversations as long as we're able to respectfully continue to keep talking about this this stuff, right? Um there's a lot of controversial issues that happen in 
many families and many professional organizations, but not talking about it doesn't benefit anyone whatsoever. So uh, the conversations are, are the most important piece, and those conversations will lead us to freedom. Yes, absolutely. So upon retiring in 1997, she continued her advocacy work. She focused on social justice, LGBTQ plus rights, and being a beacon of change and inspiration to explore more about her story and the experiences of other women veterans. The VA History Office's podcast series, Reflections from the Front, the Experiences of Women Veterans, is a must listen. Her life is a testament to living one's truth with courage and determination. Her legacy continues to inspire and pave the way for future generations in the fight for equality and justice. So happy to have been able to learn about her through this. I've, I learned so much doing this podcast, just reading about these people. I learned, I learned a lot. I don't want to learn about people and their minds. And, and that keeps me up at night, scared to death sometimes. But I always feel like I'm arming myself with knowledge. <laughs> like I need to know what people are capable of so I can be aware of it. But it scares me to death too. It makes me completely paranoid. But then I read about somebody like this and it's so encouraging and inspiring. So, so thankful to be able to talk about her. Definitely. And I, I, I know I told you before we started the show that I wanted to name drop someone and that person, uh, her name is Elizabeth Allen. And she also was a nurse who served in Vietnam. She was one of the first African-American uh, healthcare professionals to serve in the military, specifically serving in Vietnam. I think the nurse court was 96% white during the time that she uh, enlisted, uh, and she was 25 years old. So I just wanted to mention her too. Um, as you know, I'm a big advocate for diversity and making sure that folks from all different you know backgrounds and cultures and races are recognized. And so um, you know, Nurse Kammermeyer's work is incredibly important, and uh, as is the work of uh, Elizabeth Allen. I love it. I love uh, having you on. I want to have you on more. You, I learn something from you every single time we have a conversation. I want my listeners to learn from you and our conversations. One thing that I've learned recently, I've started, we, my husband and I and our family, our, our grown children have started doing these practices where we get together and we just like, we'll discuss something like it might be a verse from the Bible or maybe a virtue. It might be, I don't know, just something. But we each kind of, it's called circling, like you go around and each person sort of contributes to the conversation. And you're not correcting each other, you're literally building on each thing. It's like this, a truth emerges from all of your different perspectives. It's the most amazing thing I've, I think I've ever experienced. I love it so much. Our family has grown together and bonded a lot from it. And we, we learn so much, like you can literally take anything you can imagine I mean, take uh, we're Christians, so we we take a verse from the Bible and do that. But you could do absolutely anything, any love. You could take courage. You could take anything and just sit with a group of people that you that you admire, that you want to be more connected to. That I don't just whatever. And you 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 go around the the room and you just keep going around and around and around talking about it. Oh my goodness, it's just been huge. I just love it. That's so wonderful. And honestly, you're preparing your kids to be able to have really intense and great and sorry, my dog is barking and very <laughs> constructive conversations with with other people. Yes, that's really the goal. I, there's so many things that I le I've learned lately. I, it feels like that I wish I could have known when I was younger. But the way I look at it is 
we're just, we're building on, I, whoever I was then is just who I was then. And that's okay. I, as Maya Angelou says, you know, you do what you know, and then when you know better, you do better. I'm pretty sure I butchered her quote, but I learned that from her a long time ago. I remember reading a book called, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, I think is what it was called. Uh, that was the, one of the most life-changing, triggering, horrifying, beautiful, beautifully written Goodness gracious. It's probably one of the best books I've ever, ever read. And I, when I say writ, read, I tend to listen to books more. I, I'm more of a listener. So I listen to her audiobook. Oh my gosh. It's, I recommend anybody, every single person on the whole planet needs to listen to that. You will be a better person for it. I will say huge, massive trigger warnings. It's, yeah, it's incredible words. It's incredible yeah. piece. Yes. I learned so much from her as a person of, just how to be, how to see your life for what it is and uh, accept yourself, accept yourself for all your flaws, accept yourself for your mistakes. And, you know, living with living with regret, but not wallowing in it and, and hating yourself. She's an amazing person. Well, thank you so much, Brittany, for coming on the show. I look forward to the next time that you're back. We're going to, as I said earlier, we're going to do a, a recording of the Break Room Conversations. And we're going to delve into with, with this episode, which I'm so excited. We're going to talk about the hierarchy uh, in healthcare and how we sometimes pretend to put physicians on a pedestal. And I think they deserve you know, so much respect. And absolutely, I do think sometimes we diminish other people's respect in showing them respect. Definitely. And, you know, respect is something that should not be weaponized. And I feel like uh, sometimes it is. And so this is going to be a really great break room conversation. I cannot wait. I can't wait either. You know, from hearing Brittany, uh, she's so incredibly wise. She has a way of like, I'll be like stumbling on over some truth that I feel like is like barely in the back of my brain that I, I'm like, I feel like I know I feel like this is wrong. And she'll literally like <laughs> take a whole sentence and it's, I'm like, that's what you just said. That's what I was just trying to say. So, so <laughs> this is going to be an amazing conversation. I can't wait to talk about. I cannot wait either. I'm very, very excited. I'm excited for future podcasts too. There's, you know, future podcast episodes, future break room conversations. I think that we'll, we're going to have a lot of fun and a lot of amazing forward moving conversations. Yes. A hundred percent. Well, you guys, please reach out to me. Love hearing from you. Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can send me an email. I, I realize we, we talk about lots of controversial issues on this podcast. I mean, some I have, I have some pretty, pretty strong beliefs and I've changed a lot of my beliefs over the years. I am a completely different person than I was 20 years ago. So some of the things you may hear me say and beliefs that you may hear come out of me just in conversation, I probably didn't have that belief maybe 20 years ago. So I love hearing from you. I would hope if you don't want to listen to me, it's totally, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. You can turn it off. You can give me a one star review and tell me how stupid I am. I'm okay with that too. You have that right. But I would prefer that you initiate a conversation with me. That's what I love to hear from you. I will respond back to you. So it may take me a while. We'll say that because uh, it takes me. <laughs> I do have a full-time job and another part-time job and I'm getting my master's degree and I have this podcast. So let's yes. me when I say it may take a while. <laughs> but you can reach out to me. Love hearing from you. Wrong social media, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And of course, goodnursebadnurse.com is our website. 
And I always have to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy or whatever gender you are, be a good nurse.